0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Lisette Baron-Carvajal, a host of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Nancy Applebaum about her fantastic book, Mapping the Country of Regions, the Choreographic Commission of 19th Century Colombia, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2016. Welcome, Nancy. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So you're a professor of history at Binghamton University. Tell us a little bit about the road that led you to study Latin American history and why you decided to focus on Colombia.
1: Well, like a lot of people of my generation who came of age in the 1980s, I became interested in Latin America when U.S. military intervention in Central America and the Sandinista Revolution and human rights... Um, were all big burning issues. Uh, after a freshman year study trip to Nicaragua in the middle of the Sandinista revolutionary like upheaval, I switched my major. I was originally going to study history and maybe go abroad to Britain. And I switched it to Latin American studies and decided to spend my junior year in Spain and Central America, um, learning Spanish and studying the region which is a good thing because I think if I had continued as a British historian, I never would have gotten a job. So I applied for a Fulbright grant to Columbia after college, mainly because it seemed like the country where I had the best chance of getting a Fulbright fellowship because it had the most fellowships for people like me. And at the time, a lot of North Americans didn't really want to go to Columbia because of violence and stereotypes about Columbia. So, I got a Fulbright kind of I was like one of the last people to get it for that year. I was an alternate, and I about in the middle of July, I got a telegraph telling me I should be in Bogota in a month. Uh, so I very quickly changed all my plans and went to Columbia for a Fulbright fellowship for a year at the University of the Andes and while I was there, I traveled a lot and I studied with historians and anthropologists. And I thought about whether I wanted to go on to do graduate work in anthropology or history. And
0: I decided on history. I mean, it seems a lot of people that I interview is connected to Universidad de los Andes, which is where I went to um, college. So that's great. Um, So this is not your first book. You're also the author of Muddied Waters, Race, Region, and Local History in Colombia. And you're also one of the co-editors of a really important collection called Race and Nation in Modern Latin America. So tell us a little bit about how those other earlier projects led you to this one and why you chose to work particularly on the choreographic Commission. So Muddied Waters started out as a local
1: study of settlement and agrarian conflict I was interested in, uh, what happened when settlers who largely identified as white from the region known as Antioquia, which in Colombia is sort of known as this white region, settled in black and indigenous and Mestizo mining communities. So I was really interested in sort of the clash of cultures and races that was happening in this mining area as it was turning into an area of coffee cultivation and ranching and a new kind of economy. So I was interested in conflicts over land and over racial identity and over sexuality and over family formation and local, just sort of these really local issues in an agrarian society and a mining society. But it also quickly became a study of regions on a larger scale of the consolidation of regional kind of racial stereotypes, this idea of Antioquia as this white region and its settlers as kind of Yankees or pioneers who move into black and Indian communities. so I was got I got interested in how these different regional regions were kind of emerging with these strong stereotypes associated with them, racial stereotypes and stereotypes about gender and sexuality too in the 19th century. So it became a study of regions of the consolidation of regional racialized stereotypes and also historical myths, how people at a local level and at a larger regional level narrated their own history. And I found that indigenous communities had one version of how, their history had happened, and townspeople who might be mixed race or mestizo had another version, and the white settlers had their own version. And so I got really interested in how these different ideas about history were connected to the formation of these myths, really, about what it meant to belong to a certain region. So the Choreographic Commission kind of project started as a little offshoot of that book. The idea was maybe write a little article, which would look at similar questions about race and region, but instead of looking at them from the perspective of local communities, would now look at them um, at a national level uh, on the perspe- from the perspective of elite intellectuals and other people operating on a more national level. So it started out as an article, but pretty soon the As I got deeper into the research and thinking about it, I realized that it was not an article, but a book.
0: Yeah. And I'm so glad you wrote this book because I think in Colombia, the Choreographic Commission is so important and it's so great to have such detailed account. Um, But before we delve into the details of the book, I would like you to tell our listeners what the Choreographic Commission was. As a Colombian, I learned about it when I was in college in Universidad de los Andes, and then I realized I grew up seeing some of the images produced by the Commission. However, not all of our all of our listeners may be familiar with the Choreographic Commission. So tell us why was the Commission established in the first place? Who were its members and what exactly is the choreographic method? Um, just to flag it to our readers, this is something you discuss in the introduction, of course, but also but later on develop. Very thoroughly uh, in Chapter One and two, okay, so the choreographic commission
1: uh, was a and I'll explain the title of it in a few minutes, but it was basically a geographic expedition. It was founded by a Colombian intellectual named Manuel Ancisa, who's one of the great founding intellectuals of the 20th, of the nineteenth century of of colombian of the Colombian sort of intellectual world. Uh, and a cartographer named Agustín Colassi, who was an Italian veteran of the Napoleonic Wars and also of the Latin American independence revolutions, and Codazzi had been living in Venezuela, where he had helped found the Venezuelan Republic. And Manuel Encisa had also, until recently, been living outside of Colombia. So these were kind of two very transnational figures in many ways, and they along with other leaders in the middle of the, of the 19th century, founded this geographic expedition with the hopes that if they mapped the country and illustrated and described its natural resources and its riches, that it would appeal to foreign immigrants, especially white ones from Europe, and that it would appeal to foreign investors. And this would help accomplish economic prosperity. And they also wanted to kind of define the national territory because they didn't have clear borders at the time. The maps they had did not were not consistent in showing where things were located. Um, they wanted to provide information for government, for administration, for troop movement, and for teaching the next generation about their country. So it was about economic growth, but also about kind of national identity formation. Kodasi led the expedition for 10 years from uh, January of 1850 until February of 1859, when Kodasi died in the middle of the expedition from unspecified fevers. And he was not the first person to die on the expedition. Several of the expedition's workers had previously died in different moments. So it was a very um, dangerous expedition in many ways because they were traveling through areas with endemic diseases like malaria and yellow fever, and they and it was arduous. The country didn't really have roads at the time; it had mule trails collecting, connecting the different mountainous regions between them, you know, from one to the other, cross, crossing the mountains. And many of those were deeply eroded and really. Even mules couldn't always climb them, um, and then a vast part of the the territory, the the largest part of the national territory, were uh, lowland forests and grasslands that were traversed mainly by rivers. So it was a, it was a big undertaking, and they spent several months out of the year every year uh, in the field and studying a different part of the country, and they did it with a rotating team of. Colombian, or as they were called at the time, Granadino, because the country was called New Granada, Colombian intellectuals, and uh, foreign intellectuals too, who joined them. Manuel and only lasted in the commission two years because then he had to go off on diplomatic missions, but other people rotated in and out. And they also had a support team of workers, some of whom, as I mentioned, died along the way, and uh, what they call a mayordomo, or kind of a logistical chief, who was a Venezuelan who had accompanied the Codassi family from Venezuela. And artists, one of whom was Venezuelan, uh, the others were Colombian. Oh, one of the artists was actually British. So it was, a, it was a mix of these different people from different countries. And they also had a lot of collaborators, and that included uh, local guides who were called or practicos, people who had a lot of knowledge and information about the territory, where they were going. It included uh, local women who provided food or medical attention, possibly also sex. There's some allusion to women in the commission's writings, but it's not really clear. They had collaborators who provided maps. Uh, there were some British and other European miners living in some of the Colombian cities and towns and mining camps who provided a lot of information. So they had collaborators everywhere. And then also they had collaborators in Bogota who were Kodasi's own students, um, colleagues, and also even his own family. His young teenage sons came along in some of the expeditions. And even his daughters, one of whom was 11 years old, and I'm not Uh, when she was helping to copy maps and another daughter who helped with the drawings. I mean, his wife did a lot of logistical work kind of behind the scenes. So he had a lot of people unofficially collaborating with the commission too. So the team, Kadasi and his team spent several months out of each year in a different part of the territory, basically mapping that part of the territory, illustrating what they thought were the most characteristic types of people they saw there landscapes, landmarks, uh, pre-Columbian monuments, uh, economic resources. Um, They did what they called itineraries uh, that were kind of linear maps to show how you could move troops through a particular landscape or walk through a particular landscape. They sketched drawings of people, of maps, and they, they wrote a lot of descriptive texts. Sometimes in their own words, other times sort of compiling what other people had given them. And they went doing this for province by province. And the idea was to emphasize kind of the particular, the particularity, the specificity of each province, and then build kind of a national map and a national geography out of each province and each region. So the term choreography, the reason it was called choreographic commission instead of Geographic commission was because of this term choreography. And choreography was commonly used by map makers and some writers in the early modern period, often in the 18th century and into the early 19th century, to refer to the study of or depiction of towns and other local places and regional spaces. Rather than entire kingdoms or empires. So, early modern choreographies from even before the 18th century were often uh, sort of pictorial maps or depictions of towns or districts. And by the time the Choreographic Commission came along, that style of map making had kind of gone out of style. The new gold standard for maps of modern nations and kingdoms. Was the kind of thing that they were doing in France and England and starting to do in the United States, which was to assemble a large team over a long period and do a comprehensive triangulation where they took measurements of altitude and geographic coordinates and they kind of did these through by stretching kind of a chain of triangles, if you will, across the entire territory of the kingdom or the nation or the empire. And the idea was to create this large, almost homogeneous or undifferentiated space on a flat map, and then put the locate using geographic coordinates um, aligned with a global, with a global gradical, right? With the global coordinates, use geographic coordinates to then, fill in that very precise survey and very comprehensive survey, fill it in with the different features of that kingdom or of its provinces and towns and so forth. But that was the gold standard in the 19th century. And Kodasi and the Choreographic Commission were criticized for not doing that. But Kodasi said that that would be impossible to do in a country like Colombia Or in a country like Venezuela, where he had done this before he did it in Colombia. And the reason was that in Colombia, he was working in a country that just didn't have the infrastructure to support that kind of survey. I mean, it was a very mountainous country with, as I mentioned earlier, no real roads. And the the national treasury was also depleted. It was a very impoverished and unstable country. And it could barely afford to pay for Kodasi's little team. And he was always fighting with the government over money. So, I mean, they did this on on a shoestring. And so there just weren't the financial resources or the physical infrastructure to support a large team over 20 years, you know, covering every inch of the national territory. There were parts of the territory that the Colombian state claimed that the commission couldn't really go because like many spaces... In the Americas at the time, they were actually governed by indigenous nations and communities who would not allow the commission to enter or would only allow it to enter under their terms. So they couldn't even really, there were just many places where they could not actually physically go much or measure with any certitude. So he argued, Kodassi argued that it, it was just as valid a scientific project to do kind of a holistic descriptive portrayal mixing cartography with description and text and images of each province or each region and sort of defining each one holistically and doing a depiction or portrayal of the country like that. So in many ways it was kind of a early 19th century project and Kodasi actually justified and legitimized this approach, not only by putting it in the tradition of choreography, but also by taking on the image of Alexander von Humboldt, who was, you know, this famous European geographer who had traveled all over the Americas at the beginning of the 19th century, and including Colombia, and who was kind of a model for this kind of holistic study of, of landscape and territory. So Podassi kind of framed this study in some ways as as Humboldtian too. And there are ways in which they drew a lot on Humboldt, not only on data that he had collected or assembled for Colombia, but also on the way that he portrayed um, altitudes and regions and landscapes.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, despite, so as you're telling us, despite the economic constraints, this was a huge undertaking, right? And maybe this is why Colombian scholars have long been fascinated with the commission and you mentioned all of that work in your introduction and you know you acknowledge that that work has made possible the work you did right yes. um, however you also tell us that you're proposing a more holistic approach something that is actually in tune with the commission's own methodology So tell us a little bit about this and also about the importance of images in your project. Because, I mean, this is one of the limitations of the podcast, right? Uh, Listeners cannot see the images that you have in your book. So if they do want to, they have to go and buy it. But maybe tell us why images are so important in your project and how you use them to show your argument.
1: Well, first, let me tell your listeners that if you want to see some of the images and you're not sure if you want to buy the book, you can also see a lot of the watercolors that the commission did. Most of its watercolors, you can see by going on to the website of the National Library, the Biblioteca Nacional of Colombia, which has has those images. It's conserved the largest collection of them, and you can see them online. Um, And some of the maps are also available online if you look
0: for them. Mm-hmm. And but, that would be great that they can see them while they're listening to us. Yeah, so go ahead and do that sure. now. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> Biblioteca Nacional, Colombia. Yeah. Uh, Choreographic Commission, Commission Choreográfica. So while you're doing that, um, so a lot of great work has been done on the Choreographic Commission and is being done now. I, I do think that my book is innovative in that it analyzed all the aspects of the Commission's visual culture, its watercolor illustrations, alongside and integrated with its maps and its sketches and its publications and its draft documents. Um, and basically the whole thing, the maps, the draft, the documents, the images, they're all basically one big collection of rough drafts. Because when Kodasi died, it took a while for the country was in, went into civil war for other reasons. And it took a while for them to start publishing the work. And it wasn't ever really published the way that Kodasi wanted or all The images and the maps were not published together until quite recently. And they've never fully been published together, but Kodasi and the, and, and Cesar had really envisioned a, a holistic set of products, you know, illustrated atlas and an illustrated geographical text where everything would be understood together. So I wanted to analyze them together. And also because I think that they speak to each other in really interesting ways. So my book wasn't so much a chronicle of the commission or Kodasi, which other people have written, but rather an analysis of how the commission Represented what I saw as the emerging regions of Colombia in the middle of the 19th century. So, historians have often used the commission's materials, its texts, its images, as evidence about 19th century society, culture, whatever. That was how I first read them, too, actually, when I was doing my first project. I found the choreographic materials because I was looking for evidence about my other project, about my local project. Um, in my first book. But I realized that they are lend themselves to being the subject of the book, not just the sources. And this book is really about how they represent those regions in the middle of the 19th century. It's not a history of the regions themselves. So there's much regional history that is not in this book. And because of the length of the book, I didn't even cover all the different regions that they visited in equal depth. I just focused on certain regions to try to understand the way that they were constructing a kind of an image of the nation.
0: Yeah, and this is perfect because this leads us to to your argument, to to the main intervention of your book. And um, as you say, your book is about how elites and their informants too, um, through visual and textual methodologies, ambition the nation and its component parts. But in particular, it's also about the paradox and this is a very important word in your book, I think, sure. um, the paradox of emphasizing regional diversity and particularity while trying to build and represent a unified nation. So this phenomena was not unique to Colombia, as you tell us, because the tension between aspirational homogeneity and apparent heterogeneity has characterized modern nation formation in Latin America and in the world. So I think here I would like... Um, For you to tell our listeners about the strategies that those elites employed to solve this paradox or tension between, you know, unity and diversity and the role that gender and race played in such process. Were these elites successful in that, in their quest for unity? Well, clearly they were not
1: successful in their quest for unity because it remained very turbulent throughout the 19th century. Um, As you mentioned, the new Republican elites at mid-century were trying to govern very precarious and turbulent young republics. And they wanted these republics to be unified, which makes sense. Uh, They worried that what they called heterogeneity, in quotes, of interests, customs, and races. And these were the kinds of words they would use, intereses, costumbres, razas would tear their country apart. Particularly at the middle of the century, liberals like Manuel Ancisa believed there should be an undifferentiated citizenry with everyone, or at least all the men, pretty much equal under the same laws. And while they aspired and claimed to believe in this kind of equality of all men, they also had pretty strong assumptions about the inherent inferiority of people of African and indigenous descent that they were really not able to overcome, um, and were very often expressed quite explicitly. So when they looked out at their populations, they perceived a lot of diversity or heterogeneity, racial and cultural. Um, and the closer they looked, you know, the more as they got into towns and villages, the more um, diversity and heterogeneity they found and they documented. In fact, Manuel Cisar was sort of obsessive about documenting the percentage of people of each kind of ancestry, indigenous, African, mixed, in each town that he visited, um, and the difference in, he perceived in morals and um, occupations and so forth. So they described this diversity in minute detail, which it was confusing to me because it seemed to me they wanted to promote Homogeneity, you know, they wanted a homogenous country, but they documented all this diversity. So I argued that they basically employed two discursive strategies to kind of deal with this diversity. One, which other historians have also talked about for the 19th century, like Frank Safford and others, was to argue that the Black and Indian races or elements of their ancestry were being absorbed by the European or white race. In other words, that mixture was producing a whiter race, and it wasn't just a biological process, as we would call it now, but or ancestry, but it was also shaped by culture, by, by political culture, by republicanism and democratic institutions. So um, they would say things like a white race of republicans, which was a term that Jose Maria Samper used, a race of republicans, that such a race was emerging and they saw this advancing more strongly in some regions the regions that were becoming known as white like santander and antioquia than in others and this is related to the second discursive strategy that i perceived which is how they organized the diversity of the nation was by organizing it spatially into provinces and regions and highlands and lowlands and attributing each of these different kinds of spaces certain kinds of racial characteristics. So they painted some, they painted the highlands as often whiter and more domesticated than lowland areas like the Pacific coast or the Llanos, the plains. Um, And at the same time, those more domesticated, more prosperous, more progressive regions were also the ones they were painting as whitest, which meant they had to find kind of ways to downplay the presence of indigenous and black people in these regions that they were defining as white or whitening. And they, they defined those regions as kind of morally superior to what they considered the black and Indian lowland regions. And this is where gender comes into play quite a bit and sexuality because that morality was tied up in the behavior of men and women,
0: particularly like the sexual behavior of women. Yeah, and I think this answer you just gave us takes us uh, perfectly to the discussion of the chapters. Um, so we have already discussed, in a way, chapter one and two, where you tell us about the commission, why it was created, and you explain the choreographic method. So, chapters three and four are essential to your argument and they do this work or showing the different racial ideas constructed around different regions, right? So the construction of a dichotomy between the highland and lowland regions. Um, So you've kind of told us already a little bit about the stereotypes and how race and gender played in them. But I really... I really would like you to, for example, tell us about one particular example. I really like the one with the silleteros um, or human carriers and how you show that the commission portrayed these people very differently depending on the region. So maybe you can tell us one example. I don't know if this one in particular or any one, any other one that you like to illustrate how, you know, there was a really stark contrast in the commission's work between. Um, the highland regions and the lowland regions.
1: Yeah, uh, well, you are right. that chapters three and four are really the heart of my main argument. Um, They are the the first ones that I wrote and are among the first ones that I wrote. And they were where the whole sort of book took shape in my mind. Um, One chapter, chapter three, looks at the highland regions of Antioquia and of the northeastern Cordillera, what are now the departments of north, Santander, Santander, Boyacan, Cundinamarca. And uh, these were the regions, that those northeastern Cordillera regions were the ones that Ancisa visited, the first one studied by the commission. And there they argued, as I mentioned earlier, that they were a white sort of race was emerging, especially in the highland uh, towns of this area in the northeastern highlands. And so they argued and Cesar particularly argued that what we needed to encourage this process was more democratic institutions, more schools, better schooling, vocational training for young women so that they would be produce, you know, export products like hats instead of falling into quote unquote vice. So they were really excited about going to graduation ceremonies in this region. Like they really wanted, they, they saw this region as really having the potential to prosper and become white and modern and progressive. And in terms of Antioquia, Colasi talked about, you know, the, the hardworking Yankee-like Antioqueños, right? That discourse that is still part of Colombia today was, was emerging at that time. So they were painting these regions as white, progressive. And, on their way to sort of more democratic institutions, and they just needed more democracy, more education. But when they went to the Pacific coast, they were sort of freaked out by the expanding Afro-Colombian population. And scholars such as Claudia Leal have talked about how with the end of slavery, which was ending just about the time that Kodasi and other members of the commission were visiting the Pacific coast, the former slaves and their descendants, now freed, were moving... Spreading, reproducing, creating new communities. And the the Pacific Lowlands were becoming increasingly settled by people of African descent. And that kind of freaked out Kodasi and other members of the commission. And they were worried because they thought the Pacific Lowland coasts had a lot of potential for mining, a lot of untapped riches, but they they had very mixed feelings about this black population. And they basically argued that this population was just meant for menial labor. And they, one of the members of the commission, the future president, Santiago Perez, even went so far as to say, we don't need to build schools here. Why build schools if they're not actually going to come to school? They don't care about education. So I could see this strong dichotomy emerging and even how they were talking about the population and what they needed. For the Highlands, they believed that they needed more schools, more education. And for these lowland Black populations, the quote-unquote education they wanted to provide was coercive labor, like post-slavery, coercive labor forms that would basically teach them to be workers, to consume, to work for wages, um, and to clear out the forests, dry out the territory, which they thought, according to 19th century medical theories, would make the land safe for white settlement. So what about those silleteros that you talk about? The human carriers. Oh, yeah. The Silleteros. Well, so the Silleteros or the human carriers are all over imagery of Colombia in the 19th century. They It's an iconic image for 19th century Colombia. You see it not just in the paintings of the commission, but in pretty much every traveler account talks about them. Travelers, many traveler accounts portray them and they were representative of how bad the, that the fact that there were basically no roads at this time in 19th century Colombia. There were colonial era paths over the mountains um, that were very steep and very eroded, often impassable, even for mules or horses. Um, and so travelers would ride on the backs of local men who worked as human carriers. And these men also were porters they would carry all of the Stuff you know, the many, many bags of instruments and clothes and camping equipment and cooking equipment and everything that the commission needed and food. So the commission includes kind of one of these very stereotypical images that you see over and over again, one of these iconic images of the sea of Teros, um, showing on the way down to the Pacific Coast, these human carriers going over like uh, logs over rushing rivers, uh, carrying men presumably commissioners on their backs. And just like many of the other images of the Cateros or human carriers, the commissioners are shown fully dressed, sitting straight up, literally in a chair that's being carried on this man's back and reading a book. And the man carrying them is shown basically just wearing like a loincloth or minimal clothing and grappling and climbing and, you know, through this very dangerous territory, going like on a narrow log over a rushing river. Um, and the commissioners talked about this as like riding the backs of a beast. I mean, they almost had to kind of reduce the person carrying them to a beast, but they also talked about kind of the weird uncomfortableness that they felt being so close physically to these men who they saw as degraded and parodying like humanity and like in a bestial way. So they were very, it was a very stark, you know, division between the savage and the civilized, right? The, the well dressed traveler on his on the back with a book, re- sitting very straight, fully dressed in like clothes he could go, you know, into a city with European style clothing, and a half dressed, heavily indigenous man carrying him. And so this is sort of the very the, the way that they saw the Pacific coast, like indigenous and black, semi savage or savage people, very far distant from these very civilized travelers. Um, the other image of a sietero. In the commission, is this interesting image in what the recently founded town of Manizales, high in the highlands of part of sort of the greater, the area of greater Antioquia, now Caldas. So, in that image, it's a bunch of kind of poor looking, peasanty looking people wearing kind of traditional 19th century clothing standing on this mountaintop. And one of them is a man who's carrying a chair on his back and a person sitting behind him. And you can't really see the person behind him, but what is very much, but what you can kind of make out in the image is that the guy carrying him is fully dressed. He's wearing the same kind of peasant clothes as everyone else, pants, shirt, hat, and the same material that typically people were using. And the person riding him, what little you can see of his, his body, is wearing the same exact clothing. So it might be a child, it might be a sick person, um, but it's but they're basically social equals. The only difference being that the person riding is apparently perhaps wearing shoes, and the person um, carrying him is not wearing leather shoes. So they're almost almost social equals, and it's a very different, much more egalitarian image of a much lighter skinned, whiter kind of peasantry. And that image would fit with sort of all of the stereotypes that would emerge with um, the creation of of Manizales, and, uh, later, which would later become the coffee region, and, and this idea of kind of these rugged, white, Antioquia
0: settlers. Yeah, no, I love these two images because they show your argument so well. Oh, thank you. They show the dichotomy you're kind of trying to tell us. So I think we should continue to work in pairs. So let's examine Chapter 5 and Chapter 6 together. So in Chapter 5, you talk about the optimistic yet ambivalent portrayal of the economy um, in the Commission's work and how commissioners sought to directly influence the material conditions of a still nascent and very unstable country. So we see this economic drive in particular and traveling ways in the region you analyze in Chapter 6, the eastern and southeastern borderlands. So I love this chapter because you discuss regions that are usually neglected in Colombian history. So tell us about those economic interests and how they push the commissioners to portray this region in particular as, quote unquote, deserted and hence an ideal place to be colonized. Um, More importantly, perhaps, because we haven't had the chance to discuss this yet. Tell us about the role of local informants in the production of Uh, choreographic knowledge it seems that they uh, mostly men but perhaps also women were very important in the eastern and southeastern borderlands and that the commission's engagement with them was again riddled with controversies and paradoxes Uh, so tell us a little bit about this well i think
1: yeah in chapter five i was really struggling because i i Again, you know, they're trying to create this idea of a progressive future, which in the earlier chapters they talked about, you know, I talked about in terms of race, but this is the whole project. The whole choreographic commission was justified and created for very economic goals, which was to foment capitalist development in in Colombia. And that was how it was justified. That's how they got it funded. Um, This was the, the goal. And I wanted to write about this as a material project. I mean, Kodasi was out there supervising um, the creation of, of roads and he was doing map making for private mining interests. And he went to Panama when there was a whole flurry of activity around whether a certain route would work for the canal or not. And there were all these international interests involved. So, I really wanted to show that he personally, you know, divided some indigenous community land as well. So, and his students did many of the divisions of indigenous lands during this period. So I really wanted to show how this was not just a representational project, but a very material project, even though the, the overall focus of the book is on representation. And then in chapter six, I think you're right. We see how this economic drive characterized the way that they looked at these vast regions, really the majority of the Colombian territory in the East and Southeast, um, which were unmapped and uh, which they themselves tried to map, but only in very vague terms because they were only able to see very, very small parts and narrow swaths of these territories. In particular, they made it very, they, they, they were able to only go a little ways into the Amazon basin and see a very small part of it. So they relied throughout the the what they were trying to do was characterize these areas as places for economic development. K- Kodasi believed that the, the Meta River and other rivers of the Eastern Plains were going to be very very important waterways that would link um, New Granada to Venezuela and Brazil and these other economies, and that ultimately these would become as important as the Rio Magdalena. But this was a long way off because these territories were still very much controlled by indigenous nations or polities that we still don't know that much about, the Guayibos and other groups who would only allow the commissioners to enter to a certain degree. Um, and they, as a result, uh, Kodasi and his colleagues relied very heavily on what they could find out from local informants. Now, they relied on local guides or or informants throughout their mapping expeditions, throughout their explorations. But this was particularly important in the Eastern Plains, the Orinoco Basin, and the Amazonian Basin because of their limited ability to penetrate those areas and because much of the commission got sick when they went to the Eastern Plains. And Kodasi went with a very small group and a large indigenous entourage into the Eastern Plains and likewise into the to the amazonian forests he went with a local guide and indigenous porters and none of the other members of the commission really went with him all the way so he was working with kind of almost alone in some cases and with local guides on whom he was very dependent and the maps that he ended up drawing and the and the reports he ended up writing were very explicit that he was a lot of the knowledge he had was because you know Often uh, a a quote unquote black man or an Indian had given him, had told him the location of a given river or had indicated the location of the river with their hand or had told them that a certain indigenous group lived here or lived there. Um, But he himself did not measure or personally observe these. And he also used a lot of ethnographic information that he called from word for word, from local officials and missionaries who had traveled in these regions. So I I found it really interesting because with 19th century modern map making, in terms of sort of the history of cartography, you see an increasing tendency to erase those kinds of sources. Maps become kind of all-knowing. And you... Whereas in the 18th century or the very early 19th century, map makers would include these kinds of caveats, these sources that they got misinformation from a local source. They would allude more to the journey. In sort of modern 19th century maps, you erase all that and the map become increasingly homogenized and sort of a, a, a very bird's eye view. And you, you get rid of a lot of this kind of detail. But Kodasi included right on the maps that he was painting. And, and for the Eastern Plains, this was a huge map like a gigantic map, Um, he wrote in notations all over it about the local sources of his knowledge, his geographic and ethnographic knowledge. And in some ways, I think he did that to kind of maybe distance himself from knowledge he wasn't sure about, but also as a way to kind of fill this large space um, that he couldn't personally map or observe. So there's text everywhere on these maps because a lot of it is sort of reported information. And so some historians have gone as far as to argue that Kodasi is kind of claiming to be the author of maps, indigenous maps, because this is an indigenous knowledge and black knowledge of local residents that he's collecting um, and then putting into the map that he authors. And later on, when there were conflicts over the commission's work, this would be one thing that he would be criticized for, which was relying too much on local informants. But I think this was partly because he was very... Overt about relying on these informants because I think all map makers did this at that time,
0: yeah, and I love that chapter just because it shows all of those relations and connections um that map sometimes obscure or modern maps. okay, so we are kind of running out of time, so I'm going to skip chapter um seven. Which uh, does a very different type of work in your book. It's titled The History of the Sublime Cordilleras, Geology, Prehistory and History. And here you tell us how commissioners endowed their young nation and their cordilleras with a cataclysmic natural history that allegedly had... Uh, geological origins and that supposedly explained uh, why colombia inherited a legacy of resistance to conquest and despotism so if listeners want to are interested in uh, anything of what i just said they can go to a particular chapter so but now let's talk about chapter eight and um the last and final years of the commission here you tell us that in those final years um um there were a lot of controversies and they happened um after Kodasi's sudden death. So tell us a little bit about these controversies, uh, and how this 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 unexpected death of Kodasi affected the final production of the commission. Well, Kodasi so
1: Kodasi died, you know, he had tried so hard to dominate this landscape and domesticate it, but ultimately the landscape dominated him, right? I mean, he died. Uh, The stories, we don't know exactly, but uh, the stories were that he died from fevers and that he contracted doing this, this work and that he died on the way to the Atlantic coast, the Caribbean coast during the final expedition of the commission. So as a result, they never mapped the Caribbean coast. And then after he died, his students and collaborators tried to publish his work But they ran into a lot of roadblocks. I mean, he had laid out these very detailed choreographic maps that he wanted published and uh, reports, but they were all kind of in draft form and a lot of it was still in his mind. And so his students weren't able to finish the expeditions that they abandoned because the war, the country became engulfed in civil war. And there were a lot of political conflicts during this period that then played into Um, the later development and publication of the work, particularly um, fights within different factions of the liberal party that kind of competed over control of his work. One of the big figures in this conflict was Tomás Mosquera, um, who was, you know, the big Caldillo, the big political boss of the 19th century Colombia, who shows up everywhere. He was president several times. He had a huge ego and he himself was a geographer, so he saw he started to see Kodasi, who he had originally supported and sponsored as competition, and so he trashed the, the commission's work and the commission's allies tried to publish it and Mosquera tried to control the, the publications and he actually oversaw the the first round of printing of the maps which were not these very detailed, complicated maps that Kodasi wanted, but very smaller scale, simpler printed maps that, for example, wiped out, basically erased the entire indigenous population of the eastern plains and made it seem like that was just an empty territory ready for colonization. So Mosquera was very much looking at kind of trying to attract European immigration to these areas and investment. And he didn't want the messiness of the original maps and, and, and reports. He didn't want to show the problems that um, Colombia had. He wanted to make it seem just very positive. So there were a lot of controversies, and I can't really go into all of them now. But ultimately, the, the maps were printed repeatedly by collaborators of Codasi, especially Manuel Maria Paz, Um, who had helped draw many of the maps himself. And they were really the basis of Colombian cartography until they were superseded in the early 20th century with more technologically sophisticated and accurate maps. And they were not only the basis of Colombian cartography, but of pretty much international cartography about Colombia. So for example, uh, when Reclu made famous uh, international uh, atlases and maps in the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, they used the maps that Kadassi had made were the basis of those international maps. So even though people complained, especially Mosquera and others, and said that, oh, they're not accurate, they're really problematic, that was what they had. Those were the basis of of Colombian geography for that period.
0: Okay. So, you know, I'd like to finish this interview by asking about how your project talks to the present. And in a way, you do this work on the conclusion of, of the book. Um, where you examine the problematic legacies of the commission. So can you tell our listeners why it's important today that we learn about this history and what it can teach um, to the present? Yeah, so I think the Choreographic Commission is part of
1: a larger process in the 19th century of forming what what by the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century um, became known really as this country of region this regionalized Colombia. By the end of the 19th century, they they really talked about Colombia as divided into natural regions. And those regions corresponded in many ways with the kinds of regional divisions that Codasi and Ancisa and Sanfer and other mid-century intellectuals were dividing the country into. And as you know, as a Colombian, those kinds of regional divisions and identities are very, very deeply rooted in the imaginary of the Colombian nation. And when you talk to most Colombians, the ways that they um, talk about their identity as a Colombian is through their regional identity, whether that is um, as a Bogotano or an Antioqueño or a Costeño or a Chocoano or a Calcano. These are very strong Regional identities for Colombians today. And even in the political realm, you know, a lot of discussions of democratization of Colombia have been about, well, why don't we give more power to the regions? Um, you know, when they've created regional television stations or radio stations or even the guerrillas, you know, the FARC had its Frente Cafetero, sort of like its coffee region front, right? So these regions are a very important way of organizing Colombian civic participation and identity and they can be very empowering for people these kinds of identities but when you the intervention that i want to make both with this book and my earlier book is just to try to understand the ways that these regional identities are historically constructed and that they resulted from configurations of power they resulted out of ideas about race about gender and sexuality and they are and these different kinds of elites emerged becoming regional elites by drawing on these stereotypes and these discourses to strengthen particular images related to regions. And as the country emerges, this kind of geography or country of regions, certain regions were given a kind of superior set of traits or attributed a superior set of traits like whiteness, morality, progressiveness, capitalism. And other regions continued to be seen described as savage and backward, and these were very racialized descriptions because the progressive regions were described generally as white, and the um, more backward regions were described as black or Indian. And so that just to understand the ways in which people's own regional identities are racialized, and that this racialization process has a history, that's. I think where my main intervention is. And I think the Choreographic Commission is a really important part of that process. Oh, certainly not the origin or the only step in that historical process.
0: Yeah. And that's a great takeaway that I think I, as a Colombian, I, you know, that's one of the things I get from your book. And I know anyone else who listens to this interview, they will also um, see why this work is so important. So just to finish up tell us what uh, what are you working on right now? What are your next projects? Well, I have a couple of small projects and then
1: kind of a larger project that's currently on hiatus in terms of little projects i'm and of course, my whole book started out as a little project, so you never know what these little projects where they're going to go but my one of the, some of the short sort of spin offs I'm still doing i 'm still sort of engaged with the choreographic commission i've been reading some of the letters that Kodasi wrote um, this wife and also rereading some of the ones that he wrote to Manuel Ancisa and thinking a lot about them as people. And so thinking about their emotions and their bodies and so how they felt and sensed and lived these kinds of experiences, because I think there's a, a really interesting dynamic here in terms of gender Sexuality, nature, the environment, their relationship with these environments that they were moving through, and how this whole process of doing this kind of exploration felt physically and on their bodies, impacted them, and elicited certain kinds of emotions that shaped the science they were producing. And so I've been kind of looking at this sort of relationship, sort of the ways in which the commission is gendered, both in its relationship among the men at them, their relationships with women who participated in often ways that are elided. And what I think is kind of a gendered relationship that they have with the environment, la, la naturaleza. And so that's kind of one of the projects that I'm working on. I have a, a talk that I've given on this in various versions. And uh, I'm working on thinking about how to put that into a couple of papers, uh, probably to publish in Colombia. And then there's a couple of other just little spinoffs that I've worked on here and there, like something on Henry Price, one of the artists of the commission and his sort of complicated portrayal of race and, and black women uh, but I, I and then I have a totally different project that's kind of on hiatus for the moment as I just decide how deeply I want to go into it, which is about uh, Central American immigration to uh, the washington d c area in the 1980s.
0: Well, wow, those are very different projects, but I'm sure they'll, I mean, I mean, I'm looking forward to reading about them. Um, so Nancy, thank you so much for your time and for an, a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's really been a
1: pleasure. I enjoy talking to you and I look forward to reading your work as well.